starting from Exodus 24, verses 4 through 8. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Leviticus 17, 10 through 14. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you, shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? John 6, verses 53 through 57. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimya. Good morning, all. It's good to be seen by you, even if I'm not seeing you. Normally, uh, I would start a sermon with uh, some small chit-chat and uh, connection. I had some written out and then uh, decided... Uh, we couldn't do that this morning. The, uh, I, if you've been watching the news, um, paying any attention to that, you've seen uh, the murder of Ahmad Aubrey, and that's something that's made headlines across the country. And um, such a tragedy 
really, and race violence is always uh, so distressing. This, I think, is uniquely distressing. Here's a young man out for a jog uh, just in the middle of the day and uh, is shot and killed under the guise of a citizen's arrest. It's just, it's really, uh, it's really distressing and it's difficult to know what to say. The problems in our culture surrounding race are so systemic. They're so deep. It can be just overwhelming at times, and at times we want to just maybe look away uh, as kind of the, the white luxury of just looking away and ignoring it. Words uh, don't really serve all the purposes that are necessary in these situations. I had written out a much lengthier statement. I, I set that aside. Let me just say this as we uh, begin our time in God's Word this morning. I want to say this particularly to our minor, minority congregants, uh, especially of those of you that are in the African-American uh, community. I love you. I grieve for you. I grieve with you. I grieve that this is the culture that you have to live in. I wish it wasn't like this. I, I don't know how to fix it. Uh, I'm sorry that it's like this. I wish that it were different genuinely and truly, and my prayer is that God would give you peace, that he would protect you. I pray that you would find your sense of hope and your sense of safety in him, the only true hope and safety that this world can provide. I pray that God's righteousness, his righteous love would take root in our congregation in new ways, that his kingdom would come here at Calvary as it is in heaven. I pray that our church would be a, a source of refuge to you as much as possible, where you would feel loved and free to be yourself and who you are, where the life-transforming tra power of the gospel would flourish among all of us. I know that we are not all the way there yet, and uh, pray that you would bear with us. I uh, pray that you would pray for us as we're praying for you through this difficult uh, news and this difficult time. Let me pray uh, for you and pray for us as a church as we go in this morning in God's Word and uh, pray with me. Father, we thank you uh, for your grace in our lives that sustains us in the midst of all of our troubles and trials, even we've, we've already sung about it this morning, but uh, we're reminded in the murder, Lord, of Ahmad Aubrey, just how much we all need. I pray especially for uh, those in our congregation and the African-American communities, but really all of our minorities. Lord, I pray for, for them that you would give them a sense of peace and comfort. There are not easy answers here. There are not quick fixes here. I pray that you would put it upon us by your Spirit as is needed to do our parts in this uh, whatever that might be, but I pray that you would bring peace and comfort uh, into the hearts, Lord, and the, those that particularly feel the, uh, uh, the, the unsafety in this, Lord, the frustration and the anger, Lord, I pray that you would bring peace in the midst of that. Lord, help us as a church to model the redemptive, transcultural, transracial love of God, how you through Christ, have brought together peoples of all bloods, of all manners of life, to live together in harmony and love with each other, centered on our love for you. So God, make that increasingly true in our congregation, we pray. Protect us in the midst of this world, we pray. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right. Well, on to our sermon here this morning. We're continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world, we've been working our way through the storyline of the Bible. And the past few weeks, we've been focused on the, the period in the storyline that relates to the law, to the Jewish law. This is when uh, the Lord had brought the children of Israel out of, is out of Egypt, and uh, He has them in the desert, and He gives them the law that is going to govern them throughout really the remainder of the Old Testament. So this is a significant part of the story of the Bible. And the theme of the law really is the theme of the entire story of the Bible. It's the theme of God's redemption and the restoration 
of humanity. And we've seen in the law how the law prefigures, foreshadows, points towards the redemption and the restoration that God is going to bring into the world. So I spoke a few weeks ago about the law as it was introduced in Exodus 24. Pastor Eric preached last Sunday focusing on how the law really, the, the main focus of the law is love, love for God and love for our fellow man. And in this week and then in the weeks to come, we're going to continue to explore the law and we're going to particularly see this morning how the law is a prefiguring of the redemption, the sacrificial redemption that Jesus supplies. Last time that I preached on this in Exodus 24, I moved pretty quickly past the, uh, the, uh, the sprinkling of blood or the throwing of blood that Moses did upon the congregation. I'd said at that time that we we're going to circle back to it. Well, today is the day we're circling back to that. So I want to come back to this part about the blood of the covenant. And all the scriptures that were read for us, Ezekiel 24, we had Moses throwing blood upon the people. In Leviticus 17, we had God instructing the people not to uh, drink blood or to eat blood. And then we had Hebrews 9, we have Jesus bringing blood into the Holy of Holies. And then in John chapter 6, we have Jesus saying that we should drink his blood. So the focus this morning is on the blood of the covenant, both the old covenant and the blood of the new covenant. And we're going to see how the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant prefigures and points towards the sacrifice of the New Covenant. I want, to learn, I want us to learn three things or point out three things from the law that we learn about ourselves and about God and about redemption. So the first thing, sin has created an innate problem. Sin's created an innate problem. That's going to be the first thing. Second is we need to substitute life. That's the second thing. And the third is that God gives us his own lifeblood through Jesus. Now, typically when I'm preaching on each point, I would try to have some application. And uh, I wish I could say that that was the case today. I don't uh, have that uh, today. I got all the application kind of stored up for the end. There's really a single point uh, to this in the application here at the end. And so uh, bear with me as we're moving through here. There's a lot of rich material, and uh, each of these points really uh, unpack a full picture, I think, of the redemption that Jesus supplies. And then we're going to try to bring that to bear in our lives uh, at the end. So if you are feeling in need of redemption this morning, uh, this sermon is for you. Just hang on until we get uh, to the end of it. So our first point, Sin has created an innate problem. We're going to be looking at Exodus 24 to kind of get going. So let me bring us back a little bit as a way of reminder to Exodus 24, what's going on in Exodus 24. God has just brought the children of Israel out of the uh, land of Egypt where they've been enslaved. He has called Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai. And then there at the top of the mountain, God gives to Moses the law, the covenant. So Moses comes back down off the mountain in Exodus 24, and he brings the covenant down with him. And we read in verse 4 of 24 that when Moses came down off the mountain, he built an altar. And he builds this altar, and then he sends the young men off to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. So they slaughter some oxen, and they're going to sacrifice these to the Lord. Moses collects the blood from the sacrifices, and he takes some of the blood, half of the blood, and he throws it upon the altar. Then he takes the other half of the blood, and he throws it on the people. The congregation is gathered around the foot of the mountain. Moses throws the blood upon the people, and he declares, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Now, if we were all together as a congregation, as we normally were, and it wasn't the season of pandemic, I had visions of getting a bucket of blood and just throwing it all over the people as kind of a, as kind of a sermon illustration. Actually, I didn't think about doing that. We read later that Moses probably is throwing, he's probably sprinkling, he's sprinkling the blood. So I'm not sure if that helps it at all. You would probably feel a bit strange too if I sprinkled blood upon you during the sermon in any case, it's all a little bit strange to modern uh, conceptions, right? We don't, we don't look at blood as something that we mess with, right, particularly. And so here is Moses at the beginning of this covenant that, he is make, that God is making with his people. Moses throws blood. He sprinkles blood upon the people. 
So it's at this point in the story here that I want to I reflect on this. Like, why does the covenant involve blood on the altar and then blood upon the people? How is that? Well, we're going to move into Leviticus. Ultimately, we're going to focus on Leviticus 17, but really the whole book of Leviticus, we're going to do kind of a, a survey through. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus is the next book. If you've uh, ever read the book of Leviticus, you have some sense of what's going on in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus, I have uh, often said, is the, it's the part in the Bible where Bible reading plans go to die. So you've read through Genesis, you made it through a good chunk of Exodus because there's a lot of story going on there. But by the time you get to Leviticus, it's like how to cleanse your house from mold, and it's about you know bodily emissions, and you're just like oh, and then you just give up and you and you fail, right? So, but there's a lot of rich, rich theology in Leviticus, and particularly as it relates to the sacrificial system. So, the sacrificial system of the law is found in Leviticus, and that's what I want to kind of draw our attention to here, all right, to help explain what's going on in Exodus 24, when Moses throws blood on the people and upon the altar. Under the law, ritual purity and cleanliness was a big deal. This is a big focus of Leviticus, not just in the sacrificial systems, but all throughout the the form of worship that God brings to the people. Ritual purity and cleanliness was a big deal. You could not approach God in his tabernacle, his holy of holy places. You could not approach him if you were unclean. So all of you tidy moms out there, you're like, I told you kids, cleanliness is next to godliness. And then all the kids are despairing because now they have, mom has biblical justification for why they have to clean their room. Well, fear not, my messy children, the law isn't interested in you keeping your room picked up. So don't worry about that. Under the law, the concept of cleanliness referred to ceremonial purity and was about how one approached the holy God. Now, the term holy, a lot of times we think about the term holy as a synonym for like sinless, and there's a sense in which that is true, but God is holy, and the term holy in the Bible means to be distinct or set apart. God is holy in the fact that he is set apart from the rest of of creation. He's not common. So you can think about your fine china if you have fine china in the home. You don't just pull out your fine china for any meal, right? You pull out your fine china for special occasions, perhaps Christmas, Thanksgiving, Mother's Day, whatever it might be. You pull out your fine china for special occasions, and the Old Testament concept of holy is like that. That holy is sacred. It's the opposite of commonplace, Because God is sacred, because God is holy, he's not common, it was necessary that you came to him ceremonially clean, just like you would wash your hands before you would get out your fine china. So ritual cleanliness wasn't primarily about moral conduct. This is an important point to make. You could be under the dictates of the law. Pastor Eric walked us through the Ten Commandments last week is the most famous kind of moral framework of the Old Testament law, you could follow all of the Ten Commandments down to a T and still be ritually and ceremonially unclean. So it wasn't just about being moral. It wasn't your behavior that made you unclean primarily. There's something else that made you unclean. So what sort of things made you unclean, you might ask? Well, When you read through Leviticus, you find out that just about anything could make you unclean. Sexual relations could make you unclean or did make you unclean. Giving birth made you unclean. Normal and necessary daily bodily discharges made you unclean. Skin diseases made you unclean. Being around a dead person made you unclean. So if 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 your mother or your father or your son or your you know, your daughter died and you were in the presence of uh, your uh, deceased relative, that made you unclean. So just about anything would make you unclean. And here's a major point of the law. The list of things that could make you unclean was so extensive and so woven into the fabric of everyday life that it was impossible to stay perpetually clean. You could not stay perpetually clean. Being alive as a human being 
made you unclean. There was no way to be clean on a regular perpetual basis. And that's why before you came to God, before you approached God in worship or whatever you might be doing, you had to purify yourself. You had to purify yourself because your normal set point was unclean. And what a contrast this is when we think about our larger story of the Bible. What a contrast this is when we go back to Genesis 1 and 2. So if you've been tracking along with the sermon series from the beginning, back in January when we began it, we focused early on in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 with the creation of humanity. And humanity was created as priest, kings, and queens of the world. They were the mediators of the life of God to the world, dwelling in the the garden sanctuary, the garden temple, as it were. They were in full communion with God. God would come down into his garden sanctuary and dwell with humanity in intimate fellowship. And then humanity would take the life of God and would extend this out into the world. And then we got to Genesis 3, and the train came off the tracks. Everything went wrong. Humanity sinned against God, rebelled against God, and they were cast out of the garden into death and into corruption. So as soon as humanity broke the commandment of God, ate from the tree that they were not to eat of, something went wrong inside of them, right? Something broke inside of them. They fell into death. God had warned them, if you do this, if you eat from the tree you're not to eat of, you will die. And sure enough, death then took root inside of them and they uh, came under the corruption of death. From that point on, in Genesis chapter 3, the relationship between God and humanity was fractured. And here in Exodus 24, and then through the law, God is again drawing near back in to humanity. But humanity is still marked by sin and the corruption of death. Humanity is no different than they were back in Genesis 3 after they were kicked out, after we were kicked out of the garden. And the law is giving the Israelites a tangible, holistic understanding of sin and its consequences. There's two ways I think we can think about sin. We can think about sin as an action of disobedience, and that certainly is true. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they broke God's commandment. It was an act of disobedience. But we can think of sin as an act that kind of just shows up on your rap sheet, right? It's something that you shouldn't have done that you did do. Or we can think about sin as a condition, like a disease, like a sickness. Both of these concepts of sin are true. Sin in the Bible is an action that results in a condition. So kids, uh, if your parents tell you, to pick up your toys, and you don't pick up your toys, nothing happens to you other than perhaps you get in trouble, right? But, but your condition doesn't change, right? But if your parents said to you, don't run out into the street, like say when you're five years old, and you run out into the street and get hit by a car, something has changed. Something has happened to you. Your condition is different. And sin is like that. Sin isn't just like an arbitrary command that has no resulting consequences. But when God gives us a command and we break the command, something breaks inside of us. Something goes wrong inside of us. The law is pointing out the inescapable, innate condition of human corruption. That's why you couldn't get free from it. That's why just living your life made you unclean. It was the Bible's way, it was the law's way of saying you have uncleanliness woven into the fabric of your being. Human beings were now no longer fit since Genesis 3 to enter freely into God's presence. God's come to live among them, but he's behind the curtain, as it were. He's dwelling in the tabernacle. And in order to enter into God's presence, you had to be clean. And that's true, of course, for all of the Israelites. All right. Now we get to the second point in our sermon. So the first thing the law teaches us is that sin has created in us an innate problem 
of death. It's something that's woven into us that we can't get rid of. The second thing the law teaches us is that we need a substitute life. Right? So now we're going to get back to this issue of blood and the blood of the covenant. So when God comes in Exodus 24, down to, for the first time, down to dwell in the presence of the people again, in the presence of humanity, he's holy and he's sacred. He's set apart. Humanity is marked by the corruption of death. We're not clean anymore as human beings. We can't come into God's presence. We need to be cleansed. So how did the Israelites then, according to the law, get cleansed so that they could come into God's presence? Well, I'll give you a hint. The answer starts with B. It rhymes with blood. Yes, the answer is blood. God provides blood sacrifice as the means by which the people can get clean to come into his presence. And so we go on to read uh, through Leviticus we see that blood sacrifices were purifying. They were purifying to the people. So when Moses takes the blood of the sacrifices there on, that, uh, on the mountain in Exodus 24, and he throws it upon the altar and he throws it upon the people, he's cleansing the people. In the Jewish sacrificial system, blood was used for ritual cleansing and purification. So in Leviticus 16... We read about the great day of atonement. And so worshipers would bring uh, blood sacrifices to God on a regular basis. But there was one day set aside. It was the great day of atonement when the high priest would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. And this sacrifice was kind of to catch all the sins that hadn't been covered uh, up from year to year and would atone for these sins. And so here's what we read in Leviticus 16, 8 uh, and nine. Then the high priest should go out to the altar. So he would go into the holy place. He'd go into the behind the tabernacle. He should go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. So the worshipers in their uncleanliness defile the altar, and so blood is used to cleanse the altar. It's also used to cleanse the people. So that's what Moses is doing in Exodus 24. We can think of this as like the first day of atonement. He's purifying the sacrificial altar, and he's purifying the people. So we can see this connection between blood and cleansing all throughout the book of Leviticus. If you had become unclean, you would bring a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, just like we see in Exodus 24. The priest would take some of the blood from your sacrifice, put it on the altar, and they would take some of the blood from the sacrifice, and he would put it on you. Now let's ponder this just a little bit. Why was blood chosen as the cleansing agent? Right? Why was blood chosen? as the cleansing agent. Often when we think about blood, we think about death, right? Or we maybe think about horror movies, right? That sort of makes sense because when people bleed, they often die. You bleed too much, you die. But that's not quite the way that the law invites us to think about blood. So in Leviticus 17, I don't know if you've got your Bible there in front of you, but if you want to turn over to Leviticus 17, verses 10 and following, we're going to see the statement in Leviticus as to why blood atones, why blood cleanses. This is really the only place in the law that explains why it is that blood cleanses. There's lots of places that talk about the need for blood to cleanse, but this is the one place where an explanation is given as to why blood cleanses. All right, so Leviticus 17.10 says this, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Now listen to this. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
I'm skipping down a few verses. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. God is saying there's something about the life of a creature and its blood bound up together so that they really are the same. The, the life of the flesh is in the blood, God is saying, and I have given it to you. I have given blood to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. All throughout the Bible, blood is associated with life. The life force of a creature or a person is its blood. Blood was considered a cleansing agent that atoned for sin and sin's consequence because blood signified life. So when the Israelites would bring blood to God, now follow me on this, they were not bringing substitute death to God. They were bringing substitute life to God. And when Moses sprinkled the blood on the people in Exodus 24, he wasn't covering the people with death. He was covering the people with life. And there's a profound theological message here for the Israelites and for us. Ever since the days of Adam and Eve, Humanity had been cut off from the breath, the life of God. The whole world had become tainted by death. The fact that God cleanses the Israelites with blood, the fact that he cleanses them with life, communicated what humanity was lacking. The Israelites had no life in themselves. That's the point of the sacrificial system. They did not have life in themselves. That's what it meant to be unclean. They had a, a death-infected life, as it were. And that's why they had to bring the life of another. They brought a substitute life because they were bereft of life. Of course, not just them. This is The law is making a statement about the condition of all of humanity, not just of the ancient Israelites, but the whole of the human race. The sacrificial system was a way of communicating what humanity needed. We needed life. Death had become the condition of humanity. And the best that the Israelites could do was to bring the life of another as a means of covering over their own death. And that message of the law extends out to the whole world. God is a living God. All of us, because of sin, have fallen under the sway of death. Our life has been infected by death. We cannot come into God's presence without life, but we have none of our own. And so we must bring the life of another. But here's the thing. The blood of the sacrifices in the Old Testament under the law didn't really solve the problem. That blood only cleansed externally and ceremonially. The blood of the sacrifices couldn't free humanity from the inward and innate corruption of death. Ultimately, human beings needed more than animal life as a substitute life. We needed a life that not only covered us on the outside ceremonially, but a life that transformed us and healed us on the inside. The blood of the sacrifices were a foreshadowing, a, a, a figure, a precursor of the true redemption that was yet to come. So the first thing the law teaches us is that our sin has created an innate problem of death. The second thing that the law teaches us is that we need a substitute life. That's what the law is communicating. We're going to have to get this life from somewhere else because we don't have it in ourselves. And that brings us to our third point and to Hebrews chapter 9 and John chapter 6. And our third point is this. The law teaches us pre through prefiguring that God gives us his own life as a substitute life through the blood of Jesus. So now let me connect all four scripture passages that were read this morning as we got going. All right, we're going to Hebrews 
chapter 9, all throughout the book of Hebrews, we looked at this uh, last uh, year when we worked our way through the book of Hebrews, all throughout the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is showing the superiority of Christ to the old covenant ways, right? And he compares the, the priesthood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, to the old covenant sacrifices of bulls and goats and oxen. And we read in Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, about this kind of climactic moment when Christ comes and presents not the blood of goats and bulls on behalf of humanity, but he presents his own blood on behalf of humanity. And listen to what the author says. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Jesus took his own blood into the holy place, the heavenly holy place, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of the goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, in other words, for the outer person, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus entered into the holy place, to the heavenly altar, and there he presented his own blood, which is to say he presented his own divine life. On behalf of humanity, he put some of his blood, his life, on the heavenly altar, and he put some of his blood on us. Four times throughout the book of Hebrews, we read about how we have been sprinkled we have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. So, for instance, in Hebrews 10.22, we read that our hearts and our consciences have been sprinkled clean by the blood, by the life of Jesus. The blood of goats and bulls could only provide ceremonial external cleansing. The, the lifeblood of an animal couldn't really resupply the human life that had been lost in Eden. Humanity had life in Eden, in the garden. We lost that life. And the lifeblood of an animal couldn't really resupply the lifeblood that we have lost because the life of humans is qualitatively different than a life of an animal. So think back with me to Genesis 2. When humans were first created... By whose life did we live? When we were first created, by whose life did we live? We lived by God's own life. Human beings were made from the dust of the ground just like every other creature. But humans uniquely in the Genesis account are said to have had the breath of God breathed into us. We're the only creatures that have had the breath of God breathed into us in Genesis chapter 2. We were made from the earth like the other creatures, but we alone had the breath of God breathed into us, the life of God. Human beings were made in the image of God. We were the priests, kings, and queens of the world. We breathed, we lived by the divine breath. Human life originated with God's life, and only God's life would suffice to make us fully and truly human again. Let that one sink in just a little bit. When we were made, we were made to live not by our own life, not by creatures' independent life. We were made to live by God's own life, His own breath. His life is the life by which we live. And when we lost it, we didn't need just generic life to bring us back to where we were. We needed God's own life to bring us back to where we were. And that's the whole point of what's going on, or at least a major point of what's going on when we celebrate communion. It's a reminder that we have been reconnected back into the life of God himself. So John chapter 6, which was read for us already as we started, one of the kind of key texts that help us think about what's going on in communion. Jesus, talking with the crowds, says to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You don't have life in you, Jesus is saying, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Well, who has eternal life? Where did that eternal life come from? It came from God. God's the only one who has eternal life. That is God's life. Jesus is saying, you have no life in you. You need eternal life. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. You will have eternal life, and I will raise you up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Now catch the contrast here between Leviticus 17 and John chapter 6. Leviticus 17, we're told that the life is in the blood and that God had given the blood of the goats and bulls to make atonement on the altar. But did you also catch in Leviticus 17 that the worshipers, the Israelites were told, never under pain of being cut off from the covenant itself, being excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, never eat blood, never drink blood, because the life is in the blood. You can bring blood as a substitute life and you can put it on the altar, but you cannot consume the blood because to consume the blood was to consume the life of the animal. And the life of the animal was beneath the human being. The life of the animal could not be the ultimate healing on the inside, as it were. But when Jesus comes and he offers the blood of the new covenant, he doesn't say, take my blood and pour it out on the ground, pour it out on the altar. He says, take my blood, my life, and drink it. Because when you take my body and my blood into you, what it is communicating, what it is symbolizing, what it is saying is that we are taking into us the very life of God himself. The Father has given the Son to have life in himself, so the Son's life is the Father's life. And then when we take the Son's life into us, we are taking God's life into us. The glory of Jesus' cleansing is that our sinful dead condition is healed by the life of God. Through Jesus, the Son of God, the life of God, the breath of God is reintroduced into humanity. All of us have done things, I know that we have, that we wish we hadn't, things that we can't undo. Perhaps there are things that we know that we shouldn't have done, that we have done, or things that we haven't done that we know that we should have done. And we feel the guilt, as it were, of our rap sheet, the record that stands against us, but Perhaps even more deeply, we feel the brokenness of our sin inside of us. We long to be free. We long to be whole. We wish that we could be different than we are. But we can't make ourselves different. That's what the law is teaching us. We can't break free from our own innate corruption. We need a substitute life. And not just any life can restore us to the fullness of humanity. We need God's own life, the original life of humanity that restores us. When Jesus comes and he talks to the Pharisees, this is one of the big critiques that he brings against them. Maybe this is a mistake that you make as well in your own way, is that you see the corruption inside of you, you feel it, but, but you think that somehow by behaving properly, you can overcome the ravages of sin. The Pharisees were professional rule keepers in Jesus' day. They had studied the law of Moses, everything that we've just talked about, all the ways that you can become unclean. They made their living keeping the law. And they were pretty good at it, too. I mean, you couldn't stay entirely clean all the time because you had to live, but they had a pretty good system down for getting clean as quick as they could again. 
and they prided themselves on their capacity to obey the law, to do it very well. And when Jesus comes along, he challenges them with their hypocrisy because of their rule-keeping. He says, you've missed the entire point of the law. The point of the law is not that you should just keep it and you're fine. The point of the law is that you can't keep it because the corruption of sin is baked into the inside of you. No amount of keeping it can overcome the corruption that is inside of you. So this is a word here then to move into the application comments at the end to my non-Christian friends that are listening in today. Sometimes you can make the mistake, if you're outside of Christianity, you can make this mistake inside Christianity too, but you can make a mistake that Christianity is about, really it's about kind of living into an ethical way of life. Like living a bad way of life over here, kind of doing things that you shouldn't, then you become a Christian and you start living this way over here and you do do the things that you should. That somehow through your actions you can solve the problem that is endemic to humanity. But you can't solve the problem of sin simply by starting to behave right. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not just begin behaving right. You don't get rid of cancer by acting like you don't have cancer. If you have something broken inside of your body, you can't solve that by just acting like you don't have something broken inside of your body. If something's broken inside of you, you need healing. You need, you need something to come in and, and restore your body to what it should have been all along. The problem isn't outside of you. The problem is inside of you. Or perhaps we could say the problem is inseparable from you. Seneca, I quoted uh, Patrick Swayze uh, a few weeks ago trying to be more hip and uh, trendy. I'm back uh, to quoting my classics again. So back to Seneca, who was an ancient pagan philosopher in the first century. He understood the realities of sin, and he said, um, uh, he talked about how people who try to, who try to uh, find peace by going away on vacation, right? If I can just go find a new location, I'm going to be better. And he says, if you want to know why all this running away cannot help you, the answer is simply this, you're running away in your own company. And here's the reality of sin, right? We just run away from it in our own company because the sin is baked into us. And I'm not saying this to be heavy-handed. I'm not saying this to be critical unnecessarily. It's just the truth. We all feel the brokenness of the world and of ourselves. None of us are as bad as we could be, thank God. But we all know that we're not quite, quite right. And what the Bible is calling us to through this message of the law, but then also through the whole redemptive story of the gospel. But the message of the gospel is calling you to, if you're not a Christian, is to find your healing and your deliverance in the life of God, in the redemptive life of God. Not to try to figure it out on your own, not to try to, 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 to solve your own problem by being good, right? That there's, there's nothing that you can do the Bible teaches us, to solve the problem of sin except to throw yourself upon the mercy of God and the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then I would close with this final word here to our uh, Christian, to my Christian brothers and sisters. That just as communion reminds us about the life of God, our participation in the life of God, the initial sacrament of the Christian faith is the sacrament of baptism. And it reminds us of our hope in God. And in Romans chapter 6, we understand from the Apostle Paul that what happens in baptism, as it were, what it's a sign of, is that everything that God has done for Jesus, He's going to do for us too. So we live in this time where we've died with Christ, and God has promised that we will rise with Christ. We live in the middle of that somewhere. And we feel still the effects of sin, this uh, death-infected life that we live. It's kind of mixed now with the, with the life of Christ inside of us, right? And the life of Christ inside of us is more powerful than the death-infected life that has been marked by sin. And so what I would say to you is that in the, the, the primary thing to learn through the law, through the, through the prefiguring of the sacrifice of Christ in the law, 
is that the power of God for redemption, the life of God that is given to us in our union with Christ in His death and resurrection, is sufficient to raise us up and to heal us and to make us fully and finally new in the day of redemption. We may not experience all of it. We won't experience all of it in this life, but we can be experiencing the uh, foreshadowings of it, as it were, the prefigurings of it, the deposit, the Apostle Paul refers to it, that increasingly uh, grows in us to give us victory. So if you're struggling with sin, you're struggling against things that have kind of got you down, there's uh, perhaps there are uh, things that you can't undo in your life, there are sins that you want to make progress on and, and uh, uh, grow in your capacity to overcome, keep looking to the life of Christ in your life. Keep going back to the blood of Christ in your life. There is power in the blood of Christ. There is victory in the blood of Christ. That is the ultimate deliverance that makes us into the kind of people that God wants us to be and that makes us into the kind of people that we want to be. As I've said periodically before, there isn't one solution for non-Christians and another solution for Christians. We both need the same solution. We need the life of God. We need the life of God that is extended to us through the blood of His Son. And let me encourage you to avail yourself of that life this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have given us Christ. And we acknowledge that we need Him. We acknowledge that left to ourselves, we can't shake free from the corruption that plagues us. We feel the effects of it all the time. And I pray, Lord, for those that are here uh, listening today that are uh, not part of the covenant family, they are not Christians, I pray that you would help them to see the deliverance that is offered to them through the blood of Christ. For those of us that have already availed ourselves of it, Lord, help us to keep our hope fixed there, to find our life and our deliverance in the life that is extended to us through your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.